I think it will continue to increase and and for a number of reasons. One is just it can cause damage, right? And it can be a good way to extort people. The other side is actually inadvertent inventory hoarding. And a really good example of that is like sneaker bots, right? Who are buying the limited edition Crocs, the limited edition, you know, Adidas or whatever it may be. Um, and that has that has other impacts, right? That's more a brand impact. Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. So, Sam Crowther, welcome back to the show. It's really good to speak to you again. I think we did speak sometime last year. I don't know exactly when, but... It was a really, really good interview, and I think it was something that opened my eyes up a little bit more about what you guys do, what's sort of happening in the market. So I really wanted to focus this episode on going a little deeper into certain areas about what you guys do, because I think even because of the pandemic, a lot of companies now are operating online, and there are a lot of companies uh, that specialize in e-commerce that probably aren't aware of what's happening out there. So I wanted to bring you back to talk about... Uh, what you guys are seeing and just hear a little bit more about your advice on the topic. So talk to me, what have you sort of learned since the last time we did chat on the show? Hi, thanks, Chris. It's uh, yeah, it's good to be back. Look, I think what's been really interesting about the last really like seven or eight months is how a lot of the, the trends which, you know, occurred early on in the pandemic, you know, which people were skeptical whether or not they would stick around actually proved very solid. So, you know, the e-commerce side of things, that real increase in adoption has absolutely stayed and is continuing to grow. But then the other side of it was, you know, people who maybe have a little bit more time on their hands, you know, not commuting or having you know, lost jobs turning to leveraging bots to abuse you know all sorts of different e-commerce applications and and it, it's almost as though it's it's never ending um you know we've we've you know onboarded a large number of customers in the last eight months and it never ceases to amaze me how how different the problems that they face can be and yet how they're all driven by the exact same you know, underlying mechanism yeah, that's interesting. And I think that even conversations I've had with people in the space, e-commerce, for example, they still don't really know what threats are out there. And I think that's concerning because a lot of these, this is all these people have, right? They've only got that one platform that that's how they produce their revenue. So I'm really, I guess it concerns me because now that a lot of companies have had to go online or completely are just operating online now, I guess that sort of expanded the attack surface um, but in saying that, because of that, it means that people aren't really aware of what's sort of out there. What do you think sort of going to happen in the future, though? Do you think that this will get better and people will become more aware because there's more visibility in the media? Or what do you think will end up happening? Yeah, look, I think from the defender's side and, you know, organizations operating in this space, awareness is going to continue to get better. And I think, unfortunately, it's probably going to be you know, in the fiery ashes of what can go wrong. You know, like a bushfire happens in Australia, it hurts temporarily, but then all the new life grows. I think that's very much what we can can expect to see here because, you know, the the like in everything, there's a there's an attitude of oh it won't happen to me. And then the other side of it is, 
it is, you know, groundbreaking stuff, right? Some of these folk that are using bots to abuse systems are really pushing the envelope in terms of what's possible. And they're taking advantage of things which just from the scope of maybe one organization doesn't seem to be a problem, but when you scale it up, it becomes an immense problem. Mm, no, you're absolutely right. So one of the things I wanted to dive into is an example about what you've seen recently happen in the market. So the example was a clothing thought, a clothing store who sells quite expensive items had their website replicated and then the customers were then buying from this fake website and then being sent like counterfeit products. So talk to me about that situation. Yeah, so this was an interesting one and, and is actually, funnily enough, becoming more and more common. So what occurred, as you mentioned, a very, very high-end retail brand that sells very expensive items of clothing noticed that there were sort of six or seven replicas of their websites popping up every week, right, all over the world. The only difference was the prices and they were being portrayed as discount prices. So what was actually happening and this first component was bots were being used to scrape and replicate the website and then modify the prices to make it look like things were on sale. They were then purchasing fuzz domains, which looked very, very similar to the real domain. And then what they were doing was running Facebook and Instagram ads to bring users in, pretending that it was an end of season sale. The user would then buy the count, buy what they thought was, sorry, a discounted item and would actually be mailed counterfeit goods. So it was almost as though someone had completely automated the whole front end, you know, of the replica, like the fraudulent supply chain. Right? And then, you know, plugged it into the folk actually making the counterfeit items and just sort of sat there and you know, counted the money as it came in. So how long did this sort of perpetuate for? So they, they first realized this was happening early on in the pandemic. And we started working together maybe sort of in June, July of last year. So it was a number of months before they really became attuned to how bad the problem was. And then you know, we found out through other organizations that we're working with that it was absolutely not just them that were seeing this sort of behavior. So for these guys specifically, how did they find out originally? Well, it was actually through customer complaints. And, uh, you know, full transparency, I was wow. one of the customers that complained. So uh, I received an so Instagram you complained. along with many other people. Absolutely. Not a complaint, just a, hey, this doesn't seem right. And so... You know, I shared that with their security folk and apparently a lot of other consumers had shared that with their customer support. And so that's how it actually bubbled up to their attention. Okay, so this is really interesting. So then that would be, that would give me massive amounts of anxiety because they're probably getting people calling up, complaining, but they didn't even, obviously it wasn't them, right? So how does a company handle something like this? Because, I mean, there's so many different things going on here. It's like the complaints of the customers, so loyalty could be lost, uh, reputational damage, et cetera, et cetera, as well as their, you know, uh, being sent to counterfeit goods is a crime as well. So I'm really curious to see how a company would recover from something like this. Yeah, so there were a number of steps they had to take. Right, to, to sort this out. Firstly was getting really good at the domain takedown game. So they, they engaged a service which will look for, you know, replica domains and then order takedowns with the hosting providers or the domain name registrars. 
This is a decent approach. However, the problem is it still takes time, right? So a domain, instead of may maybe lasting three months, now lasts a week. But the problem is it's there for a week. So then they tried to look into the problem on the other end, you know, making sure the consumers were very well aware of what's real and what's not. Um, and, you know, reinforcing, here's how you check for counterfeit items of ours. Uh, this is what to expect and not to expect. And the final part was, you know, what they realized, hey, the only reason this is possible is because someone has a bot which is ripping off our website. And so they, they decided to, to run a PSC with us. And quite literally, uh, since we went live, they've had no counterfeit websites reproduced because the tools don't work anymore. And they can't replicate that website to trick the consumers. So would you say that this came down to perhaps a, like you said earlier, it wouldn't happen to me or a naivety around that they didn't know this was even a possible thing um, because a lot of these people, and I mean, less so larger e-commerce or larger online retailers, they don't really know a lot about this stuff, right? So it's probably not really their fault. But then of course, no. something like this happens, it's quite substantial. Yeah, exactly. And it is it is hard to know, right? Because traditionally the counterfeit, market was, you know, it was always going to be very limited, right? It's usually very obvious, you know, you go to a person selling something on the side of the street, or you very <laughs> deliberately go to a counterfeit website, whereas this really blurs the line, right? This creates an experience which is identical to what you're offering your customers, you're selling goods that look like yours, and yet ultimately is going to cause damage to both the consumer you know, and your brand, because they think they've been ripped off with an item that's degraded and you know, come complaining to you. It is, it's really sort of the worst of both worlds in a sense. Absolutely. So do you believe this did cause them some type of reputational damage because of the situation? Look, I don't think the damage was irreparable. The operations, I don't think got as, got as bad right, as they could have, is what it comes down to. They did act quite swiftly. Uh, and I think that was very, very key, just shutting this down earlier than, you know, than letting it proliferate and really, really have long-term brand damages. Um, so like kudos to them in that sense. Like as soon as they realized what the problem was, they started looking at how they would remediate it. So what would happen if someone didn't know that this was a problem? Perhaps people weren't complaining or like as much because I, from what I'm hearing is that the whole reason why this situation sort of was on their radar were because people were complaining and they started to look into it. But what happens if people perhaps weren't complaining as much? What would sort of happen in that case? Well, look, I think this would start to fester almost, right? It would it would just gain more and more momentum, right? These criminal groups would start making more and more money, which means they could fund more and more ads, which means they could target more and more potential customers. Uh, and I, I hate to think what would happen to that brand if it got to enough consumers, right? And particularly now where so many more people are comfortable buying things online, thanks to the experience of the last, you know, 16 months or so, maybe a tad less. It's, you know, it's a scary thought and it's hard because most people can't determine the difference, right? You, it's the same website. You're getting an item that looks the same, right? What's the harm until, you know, a few months in. I think there was also something going around. I think someone said it to me online. It was obviously something similar. It was the Ray-Ban, the replica site. Did you see that? And then I think someone, <laughs> yeah, obviously I, their account I've got hacked. I've seen those ads and... plenty of times. 
Yeah. Yeah, but it was like 99 cents for like a Ray-Ban and that's not what they cost. So I was like, well, this is obvious that it's not legitimate, but I don't know. Maybe I'm in security. I'm, I'm always very skeptical of things. Yeah, me too. I don't like to click on any ads I get. Only sometimes do I when they tempt me. And, you know, here we go. I was on a fraudulent website. <laughs> so in your experience, what does a situation like that we've just sort of discussed about, like what does this do for a company and what? how do you sort of manage that long term? Yeah, look, long term for this organization, what they've really done is tried to take a very proactive approach, right? Engaging technologies like ours, like some other vendors who are going to help solve the problem from slightly different angles because they realize you can't solve it, you know, with a, a single approach, a single solution. So what they've done is hedge bets in different ways. And that's been very, very effective for them because now there's multiple layers that can catch something like this. You know, us up the very front and then others further down the line who may be looking for the, you know, fraudulently registered domains or even the products being, you know, sent around and returned. So one of the things I'd really like to ask you now, Sam, is for, for example, a CFO listening to this podcast perhaps is responsible for a retailer online that hasn't heard of this. What do you believe are the biggest concerns if something like this were to happen? Because ultimately a CFO is in charge of building the revenue. So like this happens, you've got quite a... Uh, a substantial situation on your hands how would you sort of res- how would you sort of directly talk to them what would be your thoughts uh, the first thoughts would be you need to figure out if this is a problem or not right you know this this particular problem i don't think will affect everyone however there's still a large number of organizations that it absolutely will affect um and you can figure that out in a, a number of ways right you can you know, use technology run tests to see hey is this occurring uh, look at what's coming through customer support and what's maybe bubbling up. It's probably the best way to figure out if this is going on. Um, and then it's about, okay, how much of a problem is it causing? What's this costing? How do we want to go and solve it? Would you say that this type of problem probably affects more so high-end retailers? Because again, like no one's going to buy a counterfeit product of something that's not high-end, right? Well, not, not that I've heard of, but I'm just curious that that, that they're probably the target for this type of uh, this type of unfortunate uh, situation sort of panning out. Yeah, this I think it affects a class of organization with high brand value, and that that doesn't necessarily yeah. mean like a, a high end retailer, but it encompasses a lot of very well known retailers as well. Um, I think that's where. That's where it makes the most sense, right? That's where, you know, these fraudsters are going to go after because usually it's going to have a, you know, a higher target customer base for them to go after or a higher average transaction value. And that's really what they're after. One of those two things. They need to either maximize the amount they can charge for the items or they need to maximize the number of people they can get into their website. Yeah, I got you. Because I guess it's almost how I sort of, well, how I'm sort of thinking through this as you're talking is it's kind of like a whaling attack, right? Like you put a lot of effort into it, but if the, if it comes off, then it was sort of worth it, right? And the same thing, if they're putting in all this running Facebook ads and everything looks the same, mm. they put a lot of energy and effort, but the reward's still there. So high risk, high reward makes sense. But then I guess on the other side of that, you could do quite low level stuff. But again, it's about volume then. 
Yes, exactly. That's right. That's what it all comes down to. <laughs> Can you please explain to me what inventory hoarding is? Yeah, so inventory hoarding is a very interesting phenomenon. And it's basically where someone attempts to cart, if you will, all of the items you know, on an e-commerce platform so that no one can buy them. Right? And, and usually that takes the form of you know, thousands and thousands of fake browsers adding these items to cart, where in a lot of cases on e-commerce websites, that actually puts it in a virtual holding pattern and no one else can get their hands on it. The reason it's done varies quite a lot. It can actually be to jack up the price on a secondary market, right? You know, things sneakers or even, you know, items with problems in the supply chain, like early pandemic hand sanitizer and toilet paper, right? Where you could sell something for, for a much higher price on the secondary market if you just make it look like there's no supply left. The other side uh, can actually be almost like hacktivism, but yeah, maybe a little more malicious. So if you want to hold a retailer you know, hostage in a sense, what better way to do that than to tie up everything they are trying to sell online, right? And they can't sell anything to customers. So you don't necessarily take the whole website offline, but you effectively halt the ability for them to transact with any consumer. And you know, those are, I guess, the two most common use cases we see for someone wanting to hoard inventory on an e-commerce platform. So on the second use case, would you say that's quite common? Do you see that happening a lot? And if so, can you talk me through how that would sort of play out? Yeah, it's starting to happen more and more. Again, like as the pandemic kicked off and people realized there was now a whole new pressure and value on e-commerce websites, it re that's, that's been the catalyst, right? So the way in which I guess, you know, it's usually going to start is maybe almost the people who were doing your traditional denial of services getting a bit more sophisticated and demanding a ransom even. Um, there's been some good adaptations. You know, there's you know, some e-commerce websites which are no longer, you know, holding inventory when they're added to cart. And that's a really good response. Um, that can lead to other issues, right? Where, you know, a bunch of people add something to cart, they all get to check out and only two of the 20 get it, which you know, can create an un... un, un ideal, I guess, if that's right, maybe suboptimal user experience. But, you know, it still can be better than the whole site's inventory being locked up. Would you say that's going to increase now? Uh, because it's, it's obviously relatively easy to do and it, it can really compromise a company uh, if, no, if there's zero inventory on their site, right? Like people are not going to be purchasing it because they can't physically see it. Exactly. I think it will continue to increase and, and for a number of reasons. One is just it can cause damage, right? And it can be a good way to extort people. The other side is actually inadvertent inventory hoarding. And a really good example of that is like sneaker bots, right? Who are buying the limited edition Crocs, the limited edition, you know, Adidas or whatever it may be. Um, and that has, that has other impacts, right? That's more a brand impact because those shoes were going to sell out anyway. That's the reality, right? Everyone wants them. But if you piss off all of your consumers because they can never get any of the shoes uh, that you're releasing, that doesn't create a, uh, a great social sentiment for the brand. And as more and more organizations are moving towards these hype 
collaborations, if you will, that was really kickstarted by Supreme and Nike and Adidas back in the day, uh, that's going to become more and more common. We're seeing luxury brands, you know, that we're working moving into this space, right? Where they're they're collaborating with with artists, with uh, you know other companies to create these these new limited edition items. And what happens? The bots always come. Right? If there's an opportunity for someone to hold the inventory, get it for themselves, and then resell it, they absolutely will do it. How, I mean, it's going to be hard to answer. Okay, but okay, take Nike shoes. How much more do you think people are going to be trying to sell this stuff off for online? Like, well, it's, it's very substantial. So actually, if you look at, there's a website, StockX, which is a great secondary market for retail, retail shoes. Um, the average transaction price above retail is 30%. And if you think about that, you know, on a $200, $300 shoe, 30% is some good money. And if you mm. do that over hundreds of shoes, it's all of a sudden very good money, right? If you look at historical transactions on StockX's marketplace, you can see almost the same month that the pandemic spiked, the transaction count and the retail, the resale value, sorry, of these sneakers started to skyrocket. We're seeing sneakers on these secondary markets with higher prices than at their absolute peak just after, after they were launched, which is just incredible. And people um, and, are still buying really it. A, they are still buying it, yes. That's wild. They must really want these sneakers. They they do. Well, well, people are actually you know starting to look at them as an investment. It's not to wear them. It's it's actually an alternate asset class in some cases for a lot of people, uh, you know, which means that there's big money behind it. So it's it's effectively really like a mini business that some of these people are just running, right? Buy shoes for $200, resell it for 30, 50% more, make the difference and do that. Exactly. Rinse and repeat. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Put yourself through college, you know, have a, have an extra holiday on that. Like, <laughs> it's a very, very real way to make money for some people. So what is it just across the board with everything? It's becoming more and more across the board. I think the sneaker industry kickstarted that, or at least like the streetwear industry, but it is, it's really spreading to, to all sorts of um, organizations and, and verticals, I guess. So one of the interesting things that I, when the pandemic did start to kick off and it, became, it sort of really permeate, permeated across the globe, you're right in saying like hand sanitizer, toilet paper, there were there were people online like trying to sell things, and I think even through eBay and stuff like that, you could actually then report people for obviously uh, trying to sell things like three to four times the price. Uh, mm. So I did see a massive uh, spike in that as well. But don't you think that I mean for something so well, it's not trivial, but it's a necessity, but this, you know, it's quite a, a generic item that people were selling it. But that probably just came down to fear, right? That we don't have anything left. We now just need to buy whatever it's going to cost. Like that was a serious problem, especially here in Australia. And I think that mm. sort of set off a trend around the world about it. It's absolutely ridiculous. But I'm just curious to sort of know, like, do you think that retailers will get a, a bad rep because even if you go down like local pharmacy like they were selling things for like double the price yeah i think they will and what's interesting in this case is the bots were just being used to arbitrage you know price differences right there was a problem in the supply chain 
which meant that, you know, whoever gets their first hat holds one of a limited number of these items. Um, and that's what they're doing. That's what bots are good at doing, getting in there before anyone else and doing things very quickly. Um, and and I, I honestly think this could actually spawn a bit of an interesting case where there are people watching different supply chains of all sorts of things around the world and actually use this to create arbitrage opportunities themselves. So do you think people are doing this as we speak? I think now it's calmed down a little bit, but it feels like a very logical next step from what happened early on in the pandemic for people to shift their focus a little bit and go, okay, what can we, what can we get our hands on that we can suck out, you know, all of the inventory from some retailers and then sell it for a lot of money. And I guess from what you're, from what I'm hearing, from what you're saying is that you don't have to be some ridiculous hacker to be able to do this, right? Like you could probably do this. I mean, you could probably do it manually if you were really not, technically Hmm. savvy but i think that this is something that anyone on the street could probably start executing right yeah exactly this is the thing it's a very very low barrier to entry um that's concerning it's not it's not difficult to uh to whip this sort of stuff up and uh and and you know cause some damage at the end of the day Mm. So talk to me a little bit more about checkout abuse. So how does that sort of relate to like flash sales and limited edition drops? Yeah, so I mean, again, checkout abuse can have, there's two sides to the coin, right? You can have the side, which is what we're talking about, where people are just using bots to buy things, right? They add them all to cart and then they slowly siphon them off out of the website. The other side is fraud, right? If you have 100,000 credit cards that you need to test, Right. Let's say you know, these credit cards have a lifespan of four days before they're going to get reported to the uh, credit card provider and shut down. You've got to test them very, very quickly and then get them out to sell them. So what people will do is load them into bots that are designed to just purchase very, very low value things that don't look very suspicious. Right. You know, a $3 item and then just 100,000 checkouts, you know, in the span of 20 minutes. Uh if they fail, they fail. That doesn't impact the person running the credit cards, right? They just then get the ones that work and they sell them on. The retailer, however, has to deal with everything from all of the chargebacks, which can actually add up quite a lot. And particularly when you go over certain limits, the payment gateway providers can actually hit you with some pretty substantial fees. And we've seen this happen to organizations that we now work with. And the other side of it is then, well, there's, there's a bit of brand damage, right? Because someone sees a fraudulent transaction to X brand. Okay, what's going on? You know, this is now associated, in my mind at least, with, with that organization, my fraudulent credit card transaction. Mm. So when you said before, when you hit that sort of a threshold of how many, payment, how many transactions, what sort of fees, like, does it sort of hike up quite like substantially once you hit a certain level? Yes, very, very substantially. It can very easily go from a dollar for a failed chargeback to $10 per failed chargeback. So how does a payment gate, um, gateway provider manage that? So if they know that obviously it was malicious intent behind it, do they just say, well, sorry, not our problem. Um, you know, we've still had to, to manage all of this for you, which still costs. So you wear the costs or is there some sort of, middle ground or how does that conversation really work 
look, this is all built into their contracts with their customers. So their customers are aware of what the consequences are when failed transactions occur. And it, it usually ends up on the retailer. And how does that go for some of these people? Uh, well, when it's a, you know, when it's an unexpected 100, 200, $500,000 bill, doesn't tend to go too well. <laughs> it's right. Is uh, that not a nice one to get in the mail. No. Is that sort of when they're kind of calling you guys up saying, help us? Usually, yes. Uh, we like to get there before it gets that bad. Um, but, you know, we have had cases where it was going on for quite a while before they they decided, okay, we need to really call someone because this is going to get even more expensive. I guess that sort of leads me to my next question. So what are the types of conversation we as an industry should be having with companies to ensure that at the 11th hour, they're not in dire straits, sort of what you've just described here, right? Uh, and how are you guys at Casada shaping those conversations to companies to avoid being in a position like you, you've mentioned basically the whole interview? Yeah, I think it all comes down to, first of all, education for organizations that may be newer in this space and haven't had the time to learn about what can go wrong and what things they need to keep an eye out for. And the second part's visibility, right? It, you know, no one knows your business you know, better than you. And so ensuring that there are, you know, folk in an organization who have a very good pulse on what normal looks like, right? From customer support queries to website traffic to transactions, you know, from successful to failed ratios, gift card purchases, everything. Having a baseline of normal is so important. Um, because that means as soon as it deviates, you're going to be aware and you can immediately react to it. In an ideal world, you know, you put in place mechanisms that are going to prevent it from getting bad. But I think the reality is, you know, most folk will carry on uh, while everything is okay. And, you know, that's, that is understandable. It's not ideal, but it is understandable. And the other side of it then I think is having relationships, right? Knowing who to call when certain things go wrong is critical. You know, we have conversations with, you know, organizations all the time, which, you know, we share what we can to help them and, and give them some insight into what we do. And the moment things go wrong, they call us. And I think that's a great relationship to have, right? So we're not here telling you, you need to buy this thing today. No, here's something. If you need it, you let us know and we will work together to fix your problems. So one of the things I'm curious about as well is even since, I don't know, the last 10 years, you've got people on Instagram, now they run some really tiny e-commerce shop, probably selling bikinis or something of that nature. Do you still think that these really small e-commerce companies are at risk or do you still think that it's still going to be the more more well-known brands that are at risk or do you think that everyone's sort of in the same boat? Look, I think it will be the more well-known brands, right? It's the, it's the risk return from the folk on the other side of the keyboard they're going to make more money hitting some of these bigger guys. It's, yeah, you know, there, there will absolutely be cases where people do hit some of the smaller brands. Usually it's just not as targeted, right? It just may be a bit of a spray yep. and pray and something sticks. But the yep. folk that you really need to worry about are absolutely hitting hitting the organizations with the brand value um, and, and with the massive customer base. So there, there are, a lot, even from a female perspective, there are a lot of large e-commerce sites that have been operating for a while. Would you say that they are well-equipped? Because 
I mean, I'm no real expert of e-commerce or anything like that, but just things that I've seen, like, do you think that they have this security sophistication to really combat a lot of what you've spoken about today? Because they, they've just probably been around for so long. They probably hit the e-commerce market when it was um, when it was hot. They've built quite a substantial customer base. They're doing pretty well, but then they probably haven't really had to factor in things that you've discussed today and security and all these types of things. Yeah, I, look, I think it... It sort of comes back to being a bit of an agile organization, right? Um, and doing, you know, doing what you can to make sure that the moves you're making at that point in time are the right moves, and acknowledging that maybe something that was a good move, you know, back in you know today, a year or two ago, may not be the right move today. So, can I ask, as of today in 2021? What are the right moves? What should people be sort of looking out for if they're listening to this podcast, they run an e-commerce company, they didn't know about any of the things you've just spoken about today? What would you say to them? Firstly, they need to make sure that there's folk within the organization, if it's not themselves, that have the ability to look at the different areas where problems may arise. And actually, there is a channel for that to be you know, reported on them and get to the right people who can then make decisions to prevent it. And the second will be proactive, right? It never hurts to you know, just test something out to see if there's a problem that you didn't know was hurting the business. And that, that is, I think, is a great position that, that a, lot of, a lot of more mature organizations tend to take and it works out very well for them. So the more, the more mature organizations are being quite proactive in that sense, would you say? Yeah, I would say they're learning from their peers, which is a very, very good uh, strategy. Right. So learning from other people's failures is not, it's not always a, yeah, it's a good place to be rather than yourself. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Unfortunate, but it is better. I always really like getting into these conversations with you, just how you explain things. You, you, you really do showcase the reality of situations. You don't sugarcoat it. This is how it is. If people want to reach out to you uh, because they have a question that I didn't ask you today, how can they go about doing that? Well, heading to our website, casada.io, and uh, inquiring there is honestly probably the, the best place to do it, and we'll be more than happy to, to have a chat about some of the problems we can help solve and get to know your business a little better. And don't leave it to the 11th hour. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again, Sam, and uh, looking forward to getting you back. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it as well. Thanks for tuning in to KB Cast, the cybersecurity podcast for executives. We always value your support and would love it if you could leave us a review or a comment on your platform of choice, iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And that's always appreciated. Till next time.